this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations, one from our Season 3, Episode 20, which was the Getting to Know You conversation with Jorn Schottenberg, and four from Episode 21, which included newsworthy conversations with Naeem Al-Khoury and Donna Cryer. This conversation focuses largely on patient education and treatment of Naffold and Nash in today's world, starting with the steps Louise Campbell takes with patients she scans, and moving to a broader focus on ways to connect with patients. The last point leads me to reference the digital health portion of our interview with Naeem Al-Khoury, which was captured in Episode 21 and highlighted in Conversation 21.3. That provokes Donna to discuss a talk she is giving this coming week in the University of California Health System on the use of data for the public good. Once more, and from a different angle, we come back to the connections between data and care and the prospects for a data-enriched care management future and how that might benefit us all. One thing we've been blessed with on the Nash Tsunami podcast is brilliant, compelling, and charismatic guests. Jorn has been so fantastic, we invited him to join us every week. Back at the beginning, we invited Donna to join us every week, but her schedule and self-care needs couldn't handle the grind. And I'd love to have Naeem with us a lot more often, but a guy who runs a clinic in Phoenix, another in Cleveland, has headquarters in Tucson, is helping to raise two kids, and goes to conferences around the world has a pre-packed schedule. It was really powerful to kick around treatment models with Jorn, and equally, if not more so, to learn about some of the exciting work that Naeem and Donna are doing. Every episode is fun, but frankly, recording this set of interviews is near the top of my list. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Donna Cryer. Louise, in your expanded screening and testing of people, how are, how are people finding you? How are, how are people getting to you? Are, 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 is the sort of a non-traditional, broader outreach beyond the sort of pre-described walls of liverdom helping to bring people to you? Louise Campbell. I think it's one of those things. We're trying to sell the most unsexy organ that's highly stigmatized. I'm working on that. Have you seen the pictures? I am working on that. <laughs> You're oh, working yeah, you, on you that. Are, you are killing it, woman. Totally killing it. <laughs> but I think it's one of those things. When you talk to people, and I'm sure you all find this, and you tell them about the liver, A, they don't know where it is, but B, they think they've got two and can probably put their hands on their kidneys. Um but actually, once they start to find out about it, they're really interested. Right. And it's like, wow, I didn't realize it did that. Or I forgot it processes everything I eat and drink. And they engage. And I think it's how you sell the story. I think we've said with Stephen in the past, you can give information in a way. You judge different people. I get a little bit more time. So you talk to people in the way. And, and you. I very rarely ask somebody, oh, you made a change. I can see it in your liver. It's always the case of, tell me what you've done. What have you altered? And very, very rarely... Does what I see not correlate with what they tell me? So I don't ever talk in a follow-up scan about what they've done. The people who come to us are people who are generally more focused on their lifestyle or have been told by friends of friends that they can now get a scan or have been waiting a long time in the NHS and need a scan because they just don't get the follow-up. We have only have 26% of the country have access to fibre scan. It's mainly through units. So this is a slow burner, but we are getting an awful lot of interest from sports clubs. We did one recently at Woking Football Club where we turned up and somebody just rocked up from hearing it on the radio, came in, high liver fat, coming back in the future to have a look. It's like, oh, my mate phoned me on the phone and said, oh, you're down there. So people are understanding when you speak to them that it's had an effect. But mostly it's because they've eaten and drunken more during COVID. And 
that target of did your life change during COVID, your liver health may be worse. But that whole thing that you were talking about, it is the window to your health. Liver health is public health and it's not closing down NASH. It's the fact that you can detect a poor liver and a poor liver tells you to look for something more. But a bad liver test doesn't. A good liver test doesn't. But actually engaging somebody. We were talking with Naeem, this whole fact of engagement, giving them some feedback that can be done quite quickly. I've just had three weeks of probably eating eating a lot more quality food or poorer quality food than I would normally. I have the ability to track my liver health when I go back to see what's changed in three weeks. So that'll be interesting. But I also know a slightly better diet. And the one going back to your point earlier about the poorest in society been affected greatest. Yes, because the fast food outlets were the best obtained during the pandemic. We even had a campaign which we supported afterwards to get businesses back up and so-called eat out to help out. It was like, oh my God. Eating out isn't a bad thing if you're going to, you know, a food that has, you know, health an array of options. But so many people live in, and I love this term, is rather than food deserts, it's food swamps. So it's not that there's no food options, it's that the food options that have poured into those communities by intent are fast food choices are low cost, but also low, low nutrient. Absolutely. And I think we talk a lot about weight loss because we know weight loss works. So if we say 10% body weight, but we also know that that doesn't work for most people. They can't keep it off and they put weight on. There was an awful lot about at Easel last year and Arsold about the quality of the diet, the microbiomes that change the quality to affect your liver health quicker. And in fact, we've got a case history on we're on the website where the person tried for five years to diet or not so much diet, do the exercise to try and remove the liver fat. It wasn't until COVID they dropped the sugar out of their diet every day and they lost one kilo, reversed the liver fat from a level of 292 to down into the 230s in five weeks. So their phenotype was sugar. Mm-hmm. I, I resemble that remark. I, I understand I understand that. But for people who live with obesity, that's important. It does. It, it, it takes a level of focus to be able to, a uh, focus that's not given to maybe commuting or getting the kids to school or a thousand other things to do with life and keeping everything up and running to make the decision to focus on yourself as its own work stream, if you will. You know, something that I had to learn the hard way at having, uh, you know, multiple chronic diseases. It, it's a hard thing, but only when recognizing that it deserves its own portion of your brain and of your energy and your attention and your focus to track or do or to change or to get ahead of prepare meals ahead of time or, or, or substitute instead of just taking your sugar away. Well, what do we substitute for that? Habit. It takes more than people who just say, "Well, lose some weight." Yeah, yeah. you know, uh, think about uh, you know when they're you know making that too casual assignment. That it really is a reorganization of your measure of your life and your habits, and it needs sustained energy and attention to do that. And that's a very high level skill, frankly. It's also that ability to track it quicker. Mm-hmm. So for people who live with obesity, if you can change your liver health losing one kilo, you don't feel like you're on that treadmill. And that real difficult thing, I've still got nine kilos to lose. Actually, you've improved your liver health, which will improve other health on that change. If you continue that change, your weight drops consistently is what I've seen because they've made that one change that's benefited them. They keep it going. They've made a positive lifestyle change that quite quickly has given a result for some that means I don't need to change too much more. I will take that and see where it takes me. And consistently, this person now tracks within the normal range. They still have their sugar, but it's more at the weekend. That's their treats. Weekends are great for treats. (laughs) 
So let me let me try to take the last conversation Louise and I had in this one and see if we can weave them together a little bit. That was with Naeem, who was talking actually about the work that he's doing on behavior. So uh, Arizona Liver Health is doing a project with Noom. Okay. And he's increasingly doing work with uh, digital kind of pharmaceutical equivalent FDA approved digital devices. So what struck me is that we're going to have much better behavioral tools for people who can afford to use them and use them. And we were actually talking about tying that into some degree to CAP scores, right? liver stiffness, where there's a liver stiffness threshold above which people really better take care of themselves so they don't get to the threshold at which they need drugs. And Louise and I actually kind of put a number on where the endpoints were on a fiber scan. So all that's doable. The question becomes, to the degree that it requires um, tech literacy... Oh, you're going to make me make a fourth announcement, and that breaks my little beautiful, you know, trinity of things. I I spend my life trying to mess people up in in constructive (laughs) ways. So what's your fourth announcement? Go ahead. You're absolutely absolutely right. So, you know, on this this program, digital health is is really uh, important to me. And I spent a lot of time earlier in my career and was at one point a GAO appointee to the HIT policy committee and launched the consumer engagement in health information technology campaign for the U.S. government. And so we have, uh, and I'm actually, t- well, I, in the in the vicinity of this program, um, not knowing uh, exactly when this when this will air, I will be speaking um, at the, uh, for the University of California Health System. Um, their use of data and, and for the public good. And, and so this is something that's really, really important to me. And, and as, as, as much as my heart is in hepatology, I still love to be connected to this tech space, the digital health space, the AI space. I think it's important to the future of health and and and, uh, and all of us. And so it will be democratized. Certainly the number of devices, the, I've seen the price points of them go down. I think it will be just what's called health. But you're right. Sometimes it's not intuitive. And so one of the outcomes or outputs of our Advanced Advocacy Academy this fall will be through community digital ambassadors, much we have, you know, community health workers, but some of our graduates and who are already really fantastic peer mentors to be able to add to the things that they're able to work on with other patients and with community members um, is being able to, you know, how do you sign into your patient portal? Uh, how do you set up, a, you know, an Apple Watch or a Fitbit or something and use that? How do you connect them to each other? As we've talked to Innovation Hub's around the country, including at, at uh, Sibley Hospital, which is part of Johns Hopkins Medicine, where, where I'm on the board, the effectiveness, which you know makes sense of having someone who can sit down with you and help you in a hands-on kind of way, I think is really important for people being able to access all that's available to them digitally. Um, so we're really excited for that. Yeah, so we're in violent agreement on that link. Uh, you just said something that really struck me funny, which is that as much as you, your heart of liver is also with digital health, let me suggest that Liver needs digital health more than just about any other organ in the body yeah. does. Seriously. Yes. I mean, here's the deal. You want to treat diabetes? Measure your glycohemoglobin. Mm-hmm. Lipids, LDLs, and ratios. Mm-hmm. Blood pressure, easy peasy. There is no one metric that defines the liver. And the complexity of the liver is such that even when we talk about doing our simplest liquid blood tests, once you get past AST, ALT, they are all computed measures of multiple different draws. The liver is the disease that is incapable so far of being expressed in a single target number that everybody knows how to shoot for. Therefore, digital 
AI, devices, all that, will wind up being the only pathway we're going to find to get to a place where people know the target they're supposed to be shooting at. I agree. And I you know, would love the future when we have sort of a, a liver health score, even more sophisticated than for some of the other things that we're starting to use, that people can calculate and really understand the movement. We'll get there. And that's why I, in my in my spare time, um, you know, continue to accept these speaking engagements in the HIT space or some of the other spaces where I'm definitely the only speaker using hepatology use cases. And it's my way of building bridges to these other parts of the healthcare ecosystem to bring them in to the benefit of liver patients and the liver field. I think that's one of the advantages of GLI, of being connected to so many different parts of the healthcare ecosystem so that when we're thinking through both the needs of people, but also the solutions that we can apply, they're much more multifaceted, not, not only multi-stakeholder, but multi-disciplined, whether it's drawn from medicine or engineering or design or business or law. <laughs> Can't leave my, my legal folks out. But it's really exciting to for me to bring anything from the innovation stage into the liver field. That's absolutely vitally important. We are only as good as our ability to use the technology. And what we've seen through COVID, and I've watched it with my parents, is to be able to use a phone as a silver surfer. There's a lot of really good silver surfers out there, but a lot of liver disease sits in that older age bracket, encephalopathy. And you can get some good apps for encephalopathy assessments. Now, now they should be all taught around the families to be able to know whether your loved one is deteriorating or changing. There's an awful lot of tracking we can do for liver health that keeps people out of hospital. But if you don't know how to use it or you have another disability, my mother has macular degeneration, so it's very difficult for her to use a phone. So then I've got to teach my 85-year-old father how to download her COVID app. It's really, really difficult in an older generation who've been isolated and stuff to get used to this technology. So it does does have to be relatively simple. Although it's highly complicated at source, it needs to be, I use a red, amber, green scale because people understand it. So it's got to be interpretable. It's got to be easily accessible. And having digital teachers to help people do it as a resource is absolutely vital. It's something we forget sometime in healthcare. We give instruction, we send people away, and then we wonder why. And they're not compliant. It's not that they're not compliant. They just don't necessarily have the comfort in saying, I can't use that. I cannot do that. I don't have the skill set. And we'd really have to take that on board because we're scientists. I think it was Naeem last week who used the phrase, I, why, I, intelligent yet idiot, because we can overly concentrate on the science and liver physicians can be really, really, and academic liver physicians, the basic science is not basic science at all. It shouldn't be called basic science. (laughs) And yes, it's the most complex science uh, that you could possibly have absolutely but we call it basic why because we want to intellectualize it even more because it's the platform for everything else unfortunately you have to go through that to get to wherever you're going i remember sitting in one for the first time going oh i'll do this so i can learn something it was like whoa i'm way in the wrong session here (laughs) (laughs) but it was really really funny but it takes me back to this when i said the intelligent yeah idiot it was such a great phrase because we need to rein it back we can make it more simple and get more in buy-in than so what you're doing there is absolutely fantastic because it's often a step that's forgotten i think that that 
that's important. You know, someone asked me the other day, if I have, you know, both my parents are school teachers, did I ever consider going into teaching? And I said to them, I did, I am. I think of, you know, the essential function of what I do. The Global Liver Institute is teaching, is teaching people to prioritize the liver, teaching a thousand different things that they didn't, you know, know or think about before or think about in the same way. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or either of the episodes, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with our preview of the Fifth Global Nash Congress taking place in London at the end of May. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. <laughs>